Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you today. Let's pray together and ask for God's help as we turn to his word, shall we? Father in heaven, we pray today that you will help us to more fully comprehend that which is incomprehensible. That you would help us to see clearly an aspect of your work in our life that is something we can only seem to catch glimpses of from time to time. That you would help us to feel the reality of your love that we, in a way that we've never felt it before. And that you'd be glorified in your people as we do. And so we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, a lot of people say a lot of things. A lot of people make tremendous or even outlandish claims. And, and I don't know if this is happening more often than it used to because of the way our media culture has evolved and how there's news flash sort of culture or tweeting culture or the need for politicians or salespeople or actors to always be in the public eye and therefore they say very outlandish things to try to catch attention. I don't know if that's happening or if it's just that we're, it's always been that way and we're hearing about it more. But it seems that our culture is one in which brash or outrageous claims are made with some regularity. One of my favorites of the last year, year and a half, was when President Trump claimed to make up the word fake. You might have heard the quote. He said, the media is really the word I think one of the greatest of all terms I've come up with is fake. I guess other people have used it perhaps over the years, but I've never noticed it. A pretty outrageous claim. And just so you know that uh, we aren't picking sides, we could certainly point to plenty of the outrageous claims that another politician, Hillary Clinton, has made over her years. One of note in the last couple of years was in the former Secretary of State, when interviewed by the FBI for the email scandal, claimed that she, quote, thought the C before a paragraph indicated alphabetical order. When actually, of course, we all know that the C meant classified. A pretty outlandish or outrageous claim. Or how about LeVar Ball? Do you guys know who LeVar Ball is? Oh, I know, right? Groans. Uh, LeVar Ball, if you are a sports fan in any way, shape, or form, you can't turn around without seeing or hearing about, about LeVar Ball. And if those of you don't know who LeVar Ball is, uh, buy TV, number one. And number two, just so you know who this guy is, he, his son, Lonzo Ball, uh, is a rookie in the NBA. He's a guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. And LeVar Ball, his father, is one of sort of the most prolific self-promoters of an entire generation. He has said things that are just completely outrageous, and he, and he sticks by them. For example, he, he started a shoe company uh, about a year ago, and before he even sold a pair of shoes, he claimed that the company was worth a billion dollars. He was an NFL player for a very short time. He had a short-lived NFL career, but claimed that he was such a great athlete that in his heyday, he would kill Michael Jordan in one-on-one basketball. 
He claimed that Zeus and Jesus both told him that his son would be drafted by the Lakers. And that we all just got the memo much later when the draft actually happened. And perhaps one of the best self-promoting lines of LeVar Ball over the last couple years was when he said this. He says, there's only two dudes better than me. And I'm both of them. (laughs) The end. (laughs) A lot of people say a lot of things. If you buy this thing, you'll be happier. If you eat this food, you'll have more energy. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you. There's a lot of outrageous claims out there. Here's one for you. Is this an outrageous claim? Quote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Really? All things? Is that a claim that you can believe? Well, indeed, it is a claim that we can believe. It is one of the most encouraging and tremendous claims of Romans chapter 8. And we talked about that specific verse a couple weeks ago. And where we turn today, as you open your Bibles with me, please do turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Where we turn today is the follow-up on this tremendous claim by the Apostle Paul for the life of the Christian. He elaborates on the work of God in the life of a Christian in verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. So if you're here today, grab a Bible with me, turn to page 944, and we do encourage you to follow along as we read and keep it open throughout the sermon because it will help you see just the wonderful, wonderful things that God communicates to us for this life. This is what Paul writes starting in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And so as... We have been looking at Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 for the last numbers of months now. We've seen the reality that God takes people who are far away from him 
and draws near to them. And through faith in Jesus, he remakes them. If you're here today and you have been a Christian for 100 years or not a Christian yet, or somewhere in between, you need to know that God is in the business of remaking people. And he desires to do that work in you. He does not want you to stay the same way that you were. And in fact, when God enters into your life and you put your faith in his son Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he will, he will change you. And this is one of the great and encouraging truths of this life for the Christian. And we'll remind ourselves at the end of the message today about some of the things we've learned and how he goes about that changing work. But first, we look to the end of this section of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. You've heard me say that before. And in these verses, we see an explosion of encouraging news for us. And it's encouraging, and it's encouraging, but it causes in us at the same time to sort of ask some important questions. Because if you've been hearing all this good news of the gospel in your life and seeing how God actually remakes people and attributing some of those things to your experience, and you see that good news, there is a sense in which we naturally look at the circumstances of our life and we ask some important questions or maybe even doubt that some of these things are true because the things that we see with our eyes or the things that we feel in our experience or our perception of reality might not line up with what we think God is saying to be true with all of this tremendous and encouraging news. When we are in danger, we're tempted to believe that God is absent. When we are dealing with physical disease, or difficulty, we're tempted to wonder if God still cares. When we experience ridicule for our faith, we're pressed to the point of doubt. And so that human experience, contrasted with the wonderful truths of God, is where Paul starts this section of text in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? That these things are the wonderful promises of God, and he has to ask the question for those of us who are struggling with doubt. That these things he's referring to, we talked about a couple of weeks ago in verses 28 through 30, the fact that God promises to work all things out for good. For those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And the reason why he does that is because God foreknew us before the foundation of the world. He knew you, not just knew about you, but actually knew you. And because he foreknew you, he predestined us. And because he predestined us, he called us, it tells us. And because he called us, he justified us. And because he justified us, it says that he will glorify us. And therefore, we have confidence that God will indeed fact work out all those things for good, for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And so, of course, God is for us. And we see, then starting in verses 31 through 39, this wonderful conclusion that is meant to further bolster our confidence in the work of God. 
we see here seven rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul just sort of rattles off on eight verses. And they function as a crescendo. They function as the climax, as the pinnacle, as the high point, as the culmination of all of this saving, changing, marvelous work of God in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And we might say it leads us to this wonderful point, and that is this. That God's work and God's love secure the destiny of his children. That God's work and God's love secure the destiny of his children. And if that's true, then no matter what it looks like in your day-to-day life, the overarching, defining part of your reality is not something you have done but it is something that is given to you. I want you to think about that for a second because we are taught the exact opposite. We're taught that the defining parts of my life are because I have done certain things, because I continue to do certain things, because at this juncture in the road I made a left turn instead of a right or a right turn instead of a left, and that set me on a trajectory and a course And I'm not saying that your choices in life don't matter. In fact, they very much do. And they very much do have practical implications for your life. But what we are saying is that the defining part of your life, the greatest part of your reality is not based on something you have done. It's based on something that is done to you or given to you by God. And that's where Paul explains for us a clear description of these two things, God's work for us in Christ and God's love for us in Christ. And so let's look at them together. In verses 31 to 34, we see God's work for us in Christ. And of these seven rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul rattles off, there's really two of them that sort of drive the meaning of the passage. The first one is found right there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's one of those verses that is often either discarded completely (laughs) or misapplied in some kind of weird ways, right? Sometimes we tend to think, that if God is for us, that that must mean that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and God will sort of bless it or baptize it, right? That's what it means for God to be for us. Not so much. On the other end of the spectrum, we might say, well, um, if to, for God to be for me, it means that God will do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And if he doesn't, well, then I don't really think he's for me. And that's not really what is happening here either. What we're getting to here is sort of the nature of faith. Ravi Zacharias once wrote as he defined faith, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. 
And the good news here is that God actually knows what we need better than we know what we need. That God, the one who stands over all history and time and space, but yet is involved in the lives of men and women and boys and girls in very detailed ways, that God actually knows all the nuances of my day and all the implications better than I know them. (laughs) That the God of heaven and earth who created me actually knows me better than I know myself. And there's a wonderful truth that he is for us. That he's for us. And we see that here, verse 32, how do we know that to be true? How do we know that he's for us? Well, look at it with me. He says, For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The proof of God's work is found in sacrifice. If God sacrificed the most important person to him, his very own son, for your good, well then of course he's going to give you lesser things of importance for your good. He's for us. And this sacrifice that is displayed is sort of the truest type of love. And you know that to be true from your own experience, right? That the truest types of love are often expressed in sacrifice. Your marriages work, if if they're working. Your, Your marriages work because of sacrifice. Not because you are trying to get out the most that you can get for you in the marriage, but actually because you are trying to give of yourself to the other. That's how the healthiest marriages among us work. It's a wonderful thing to see husbands and wives sacrificing for each other over the course of years and years. And I even think about our congregation right now, and I think of the beauty of a man who is caring and sacrificing for his wife into her late years, even as he is healthy, but she is not. Or a woman who is caring for her husband as he begins to lose his memory, but she is still sharp. And her sacrifice is based on love, and she's exhausted by it. And she would choose all kinds of other things to do if she had the time and the space. But the truest form of love comes in the form of sacrifice, You know, your friendships in this life, your closest friendships, are not just based on mutual interest. They're also based on willingness to sacrifice for each other. That's a form of love. And and this, in so many ways, is contradictory to other messages that we receive. I love the way that Phil Riken describes the sacrifice of Jesus and how God chiefly displays his work through the nature of sacrifice. He says that most kingdoms do anything and everything that they can to protect the king. That's the nature of kingdoms and history. And it's even sort of the unspoken premise of the game of chess, isn't it? (laughs) That when the king falls, the kingdom is lost. And therefore, the king must be protected at all costs. Another example in history comes from the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day on June 6, 1944. Prime Minister Winston Churchill of England desperately wanted to join the forces and watched the invasion from a bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. And fearing that the ship would be lost and Churchill would die, 
U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower tried to convince him otherwise, but he was unable to do so. And so he appealed to a higher power. He appealed to King George VI. And the king went on to Churchill and he told him that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, then surely he must conclude that it was the duty of the king to join him on the battleship. And at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down. For he knew that he could never, ever expose the king of England to such a danger as that. But you know, the kingdom of God functions in the exact opposite way. Jesus did the exact opposite thing. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life, the life of the king, for the life of the people. He would die for all the wrong things that we'd ever done or would ever do, completely atoning for our sins. The crown of thorn that was meant to be a mockery to him actually proclaimed his kingly dignity, even into death. And if he is willing to sacrifice like that so that we who have faith might receive the forgiveness of sins, then of course he will continue to give you good things as he expresses his work to you. And another benefit of those good things we just see in verses 33 and 34, look at it with me. He reminds us that the benefit of the sacrifice is that regardless of who brings charges against us because of our sins, that we've received the righteousness of the one who was sacrificed and therefore we won't be condemned. There's no condemnation against God's elect, no charge against them. And then there's this wonderful reality of Jesus, the risen one, who continues to intercede for us. Now coming out of the terrible explanation of sin in Romans 7, and Paul writes this dynamic of wrestling in the flesh, and he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you might remember this wonderful, encouraging new position that we have because of Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the work of God for us who believe is final. It's permanent. It cannot and will not ever be undone. And so what does that mean for you, Christian? What it means for you, if you're a Christian, it means that you can have confidence that Christ's work is sufficient for you and that God's love will continue to be directed to you regardless of what your circumstances look like around you, how good or how bad they actually are. This is especially important for us when life can be really hard because we're tempted to think that God is absent. But in fact, he gives us everything we need, even good gifts, in the midst of suffering. What else does it mean for you? Well, it means, just quite frankly, that when Satan knocks on the door of your mind or on your heart to condemn you of your sins of the past, which he does to all of us in a temptation to doubt what God has done, when Satan knocks there to condemn you, you claim the promises of Christ 
of those who believe because no spiritual being can bring charge against God's elect, verse 33. That your standing is sure. It also means that you can live in comfort and assurance that Jesus, the Son of God, continues to intercede to the Father on our behalf. Look at verse 34. It's a wonderful, encouraging truth for you. He says, more than that, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That means that Jesus actually prays for you to God the Father with regard to the good things that God is going to give you. Now, we saw a number of weeks ago and earlier in Romans 8 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You remember that? That the Spirit of God prays to God the Father for us when we don't know how to pray. And now we see that the Son of God, sitting at his very right hand, is praying to the Father for us. Isn't it incredible that the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continues to work out your life for your good? That they're not distant, but they're very near? That if, I mean, there's all kinds of implications there, right? If Jesus is interceding on your behalf, then then he knows what to intercede for. <laughs> and if he knows what to intercede for, he knows what you're doing and what you're not doing. And if he knows what you're doing and what you're not doing, he probably knows what you're thinking and not thinking. And he knows the temptations of your life that are so real and so ever-present. And he is saying to his father, Father, those people are mine. <laughs> and they're yours. And so let's continue to give good things to them. What a wonderful comfort. And so we see in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or how about 1 John 2, 1? My little children, John writes, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God's work and God's love secure the destiny of his children. And we've been looking at God's work and how God's work for us in Jesus Christ secures this destiny. Now look with me at God's love. In verses 35 through 39, we see how God's love for us in Christ secures our destiny as his children. Verse 35 points to the other dominant question of the seven that help us understand this. The first one was what? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the second one now is who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Nothing will separate us from the love of of Christ, because God loves you infinitely more than you can comprehend. At the beginning of our time together today in the message, we prayed together that God would help us to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And we're referring to his love. There, it almost seems in some way like a fool's errand to try to put words to something that we can only catch glimpses of. Something that can change our life and our reality and yet we cannot fathom the depths and the breadths of it. 
And this is the nature of God's love. And so Jesus, because nothing will ever separate us from his love, tells us to trust in this love and the provision that he gives. And so that's all over the New Testament. You might remember one very simple example for our daily lives found in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And so Paul writes even here in Romans 8, verse 35 and on. He says, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And that quote in verse 36 might seem like sort of a bizarre placement in the middle of this great call. Nothing's going to separate us, but it's written that we're being killed. What on earth is going on here? He's quoting Psalm 44. And I would encourage you tonight, before you go to bed, sit down and read Psalm 44 in its entirety. But he quotes it with a wonderful purpose in mind. Because in Psalm 44, God's people express their anguish and turmoil in life. Despite the fact that they're being faithful to him. And they continue to follow him. Now typically in the Old Testament we see all kinds of examples of God's people expressing their anguish and their turmoil. But it's because they've been unfaithful to them, to God. God's allowed them to experience the consequence of their actions. He's judged them to try to bring them back. He's convicted them. And they have all these hard things going on because they've worshipped idols or they've gone their own way. But here, here they're actually faithful. And life is still really hard. <laughs> And so the psalm is the call to God to remember his everlasting love and to intervene on their behalf, as he'd done so many times before. It's a call for God to exercise his love. And he places it right here, Paul places it right here, to remind us that difficulty comes even when we are being faithful. But this difficulty does not indicate a lack of God's love Instead, just the opposite. It motivates us to call upon him in his love all the more. Because these things that Paul lists, these are the things that might cause us to think that our faith isn't going to last. Right? I mean, danger and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and the sword. Those are the things where you would say, man, if I had to go up against some of those things, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to continue to believe or if God is going to continue to hold me. But yet, the Apostle Paul had these very same things actually happen to him in his life. Think with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read just a little bit of it to you. Paul's talking about his own life, and it sounds an awful lot like Romans 8, except it's actually happened. He said, I'm 
have had far greater labors and more imprisonments and countless beatings and often near death. And five times I've had the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. I was once stoned. I was three times shipwrecked. I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from the, my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the false brothers. I've had many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all of those things, I've still had all the daily pressures of, of, on me of the anxiety of all of the churches. Who is weak that I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why can he boast in those things? Because even when he is weak, the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ is even stronger. And so back to Romans 8, 37, he says, No, in all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? God loves you. If you're here today and you have your faith in Jesus, God loves you. No matter what it looks like, no matter how hard it is, he loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you. words cannot fully express the nature of this love. And so we've tried for centuries to try to put words around it to help us understand, to help us to feel it. Even to feel it when we feel the opposite. And so we have a hymn like the hymn from Frederick Martin Lehman from the early 1900s. And it rings true for those of us who know Christ. It says... The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. How measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. God's work and God's love secure the destiny of his children. And so as we close, I want to remind you, and we want to remind each other, of how this work and this great love is expressed as God remakes people. <laughs> Do you remember Romans chapter 5? Now many months ago. How we see in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. That God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Or that we are justified. Or declared righteous. It's a legal term. Through faith in Jesus who forgives. And, and because we're justified we can have peace with God. And he changes us. And how we're born into the realm of our father Adam, a realm of sin. 
a realm that leads to death. But when we put our faith in Christ, we're transferred to the realm of his son, Jesus. This is the realm of grace and forgiveness and and life. And how in Romans chapter 6, we see that through this faith in Jesus, that Jesus actually unites himself to us wonderfully and mysteriously and eternally. Never to let us go. And we're talked about as being found in him and he is found in us. And in this mysterious union with Christ, we, we celebrate that in baptism. That's a symbol of it. But this mysterious union is one that Jesus, in which Jesus confers all of his benefits to us and he takes all of our sins away upon himself. And God makes us alive to himself. He starts us down this path of sanctification. Sanctification just means becoming more holy. God makes you more like the Son, Jesus, that he unites you to. And because Jesus rose from the dead, then we too will rise from the dead someday to eternal life. And then we saw in Romans chapter 7 how in the meantime, in, in the rest of our life, we live sort of and the in-between spots of these two realms, or the, the, the overlap, if you will. How we were born into the realm of Adam, the realm of sin. We still struggle with sin. The earth is still marred by sin, has not yet fully been redeemed. And yet, spiritually, we live in the realm of Christ. And so, we're tempted, and sin is really strong, and the law isn't going to save us because poss- it's not possible for us to do the good things that the law sets before us. But Jesus is more powerful than sin. And he's united himself to us. And so as he does, we have the power not to sin anymore. We're not slaves anymore to that reality. Even though we wrestle and even though we struggle, he saves us from this body of death. And then we come to Romans chapter 8, this incredible, encouraging chapter. And we see how the wonderful benefits of a relationship with God means that we have a life in the Holy Spirit. And that helps us to live in ways that are pleasing to God. And that because of the Spirit, we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. We have all of the benefits of our eternal Father given to us as blessings as his children. And we see how the Spirit leads us toward our eternal destiny. He leads us through the ins and outs and the ups and downs of this life. And he leads us toward eternity. And we got a glimpse into God's eternal purposes, didn't we? And how God works those purposes out in us. That he knew us before the beginning of the world. And that he promises to work things out for our good. God's work and God's love secure the destiny of his children. God will not do all of these things in your life only to undo them. God has not been engaging in the process of remaking you to abandon the project. He will see it through to its completion. And you need to know that that comes or is initiated through faith. And so if you're here today and you hear about 
God doing these wonderful things and promising these wonderful things and expressing his love in these wonderful ways, but you haven't yet put your own faith in Jesus, that you haven't trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, that you haven't said, Lord, your ways are better than my ways and I'll follow you with my life and I'll stop trying to justify myself, but rather let you forgive me and justify me. If you haven't yet done that, then you need to know that these things don't just happen to you. (laughs) That the whole Work and love of God open up when you put your faith in Christ. That's what we celebrate as Christians. I would implore you today, if you've yet to do so, then let today be the day where you surrender to him in that way. And we celebrate that every single month when we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that remaking work that starts with faith and as at the very center of it, the nature of sacrifice. And so... I want to ask you to do something as we prepare to remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ shed. I want to ask you to spend a couple of moments praying to God silently. And in doing so, to the very best of your ability, express your appreciation for his love. Something that words cannot fully express and yet we see so clearly And then secondly, to say to him again, God, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that forgives me of my sins. So let's pray together and prepare in that way. Amen.